0: At sax.com. dot com.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Art of History Podcast. My name is Amanda Matta, I'm your host and the owner of way too many art history textbooks that just kind of hung around and I never got around to selling after my undergraduate degree was completed. If you're tuning in, that probably means that you are a lover of art or history or both. Art history is a thing. (laughs) Which is great because I am too. Before we begin, I do want to place a brief content warning at the top of this episode. I will be discussing suicide in a historical context. If you're new here, the premise of the show is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. I will let you know what that's gonna be for today in just a minute, although if you listened to the last episode, you already know. I guess also if you read the title. Anyway, I will be posting images of that artwork and some supplemental photos over on the Instagram at Art of History Podcast. While you're there, go ahead and give the show a follow. It will only save you time for future episodes. I will guide us through a look at that piece together and we will explore the bigger picture behind it. Before we dive in today, this is your cursory reminder to rate, review, subscribe, email your art history professor that you haven't talked to in 15 years and tell them that you enjoy the show and they should totally check it out and maybe give me uh, an A, that would be great. I'm no longer working towards a degree. I just, I like validation. Today, we are going to continue and conclude our discussion of Black American sculptress, Edmonia Lewis. If you have not yet listened to part one, I highly recommend you do so, otherwise a lot is not going to make sense in this episode. I don't have, quite frankly, the time to (laughs) recap her entire biography, so I'm going off of the assumption that you have listened to that and you uh, know the beginning parts of her biography. And once again, if you are looking to learn more about Edmonia Lewis or maybe synthesize some information about her, I highly, highly recommend the source written by Kirsten Buick called Child of the Fire, Mary Edmonia Lewis and the Problem of Art History's Black and Indian Subject. It is a comprehensive and detailed Are those the same thing? Comprehensive and detailed study of not just Edmonia's life, which we don't know too much about, spoiler alert, but also of her work and how it interacts with some of the broader cultural movements happening during her lifetime. We are going to pick back up with Edmonia as she is in the middle of her artistic residency in Rome, where you may remember she basically was driven in order to pursue artistic opportunities for herself. In 1878, she told the New York Times, I was practically driven to Rome in order to obtain the opportunities for art culture and to find a social atmosphere where I was not constantly reminded of my color. Remember, Edmonia Lewis was part Black and Native American. The end of that quote is quite chilling. She said, the land of Liberty had no room for a colored sculptor. But Rome, as it turned out, did, and while Edmonia was there studying neoclassical sculpture, she spent over four years completing arguably her most famous work, The Death of Cleopatra. At times, she ran low on money, and to complete this work, she returned to the United States, where she exhibited and sold smaller pieces to earn the necessary funds to carry on. But by this point, the US was sort of a stepping stone in that way for Edmonia. It was a means to an end. It was not where she was going to be receiving acclaim and validation for her work, but the death of Cleopatra was clearly a labor of love. And so she persisted. And by 1876, the piece was finished. She did ship the over 3000 pound sculpture to Philadelphia for the 1876 centennial exposition, possibly hoping to achieve some of that acclaim in her own country. Americans, you may remember, loved to visit Edmonia's studio in Rome. They treated it like a tourist attraction on their grand tours or on their honeymoons. But within the art world, it seemed like critics and purchasers of art were always looking to interact with her work with some sort of agenda. And maybe for that reason, she feared that judges at the Centennial Exposition would reject her sculpture. An interview titled Seeking Equality Abroad, which ran in the New York Times, describes the moment that death of Cleopatra was up for consideration. It says of Edmonia, quote, she had seen with trembling for the fate of hers, work after work being rejected by the committee. At length, the box containing dying Cleopatra was brought in and opened. I scarcely breathed, she said, I felt as though I was nothing. They opened the box, looked at the work, talked together for a moment, And then I heard the order given to place it in such and such position. The quote continues from the New York Times. The Indian stoicism gave way. Miss Lewis swallowed her sobs for the moment and went home and had a good cry all by herself. We've all we've all been there. The exposition panel, probably to Edmonia's great relief, placed the sculpture in Gallery K of Memorial Hall, apparently set aside for American artists guidebooks for the exposition noted that the work was for sale by placing a neat asterisk behind the title. The sculpture's subject matter inspired, quote, both fervent praise and criticism, for here was an unusually realistic portrayal of Cleopatra's suicide. Some viewers were in awe of the stark image, while others were completely repelled by it. Artistic critics called it, quote, the most remarkable piece of sculpture in the American section of the show. Smithsonian Museum of Art curator Karen Lemmy says, Some people were blown away by it. They thought it was a masterful marble sculpture. The People's Advocate, an African American run newspaper, wrote that Lewis's masterpiece got more views than any of the other 673 works in the exposition. The title of this sensational piece is inscribed upon its base. And sure enough, Edmonia Lewis has showed us the legendary queen of ancient Egypt upon her throne in the moments after she has committed suicide by poisoning herself with a snake bite. She wears her royal attire, diaphanous draped garments and an imposing headdress, as well as necklaces and an armband, which you kind of are led to believe are made of gold. She reclines upon her magisterial throne with her breasts bared, giving viewers an unflinching view of the final moments of Egypt's last Pharaoh. Cleopatra's right hand rests on the top of her thigh, clutching the snake that has delivered its fatal dose of poison. Or, I guess, venom. (laughs) Her left arm drapes limply over the arm of the throne in what art historian Kirsten Buick points out as a shorthand gesture for death in Christian art. Exposition attendees would have known immediately what they were looking at. To create a sense of asymmetry and movement, Lewis employed the classical art technique of contrapposto, wherein limbs are either relaxed or engaged in opposition to the ones on the same side of the body. So where Cleopatra's right arm is active, holding the asp even in death, her right leg has gone slack and is pulled back towards the throne. Her left leg, contrasting with that listless left arm, is engaged and pushed towards the viewer. The effect leaves you with the sense that Cleopatra may slip forward off the throne and onto the floor. Her lifeless body, with her head tilted back and her arms splayed open, shows an evocative realism that is kind of uncharacteristic of the sentimental art of the late 19th century. We talked a bit about that in part one. But a closer look at the queen's lifeless face clearly reveals not anguish in her features, as might be expected when viewing one's death throes after poisoning by snake, but tranquility, serenity. Her head turns to her left, quote, away from the asp and her self-inflicted wound. As a result, her face is only visible from the left-hand side of the sculpture. Edmonia designed the piece so that viewers on all sides would have an interesting view. But from that left side, you can see that Cleopatra wears an archaic smile on her mouth, with just slightly parted lips, making it appear as though she has just exhaled and is perhaps just taking a very long nap rather than being very much deceased. Despite the inherently traumatic manner of death, which seems to have just taken place moments before, this is not a violent scene. It is instead one of peace and satisfaction almost. The Smithsonian tells us that Lewis was working at a time when neoclassicism, the popular artistic style of the day, favored these classical, biblical, or literary themes. Thus, Cleopatra was not an uncommon subject. Kirsten Buick chalks this up to the fact that she was a well-known female subject, artists tended to depict monumental females in their masterworks, with a particularly titillating story. Beyond that, a new era of interest in all things Egyptian had been sparked by Napoleon's invasion and sacking of Egypt in 1799. Egyptian aesthetics now permeated everything from fashion to architecture to furniture. And Cleopatra herself became an almost fetishized motif that adorned beauty products, cigar boxes and pieces of decorative art. And so to get a little more familiar with Egypt's last queen, I would love to give you the CliffsNotes version of her life before we come back to discuss this dramatic depiction of her death. Cleopatra VII, because there were actually quite a few Cleopatras, ruled as queen of Egypt from 51 to 30 BCE. She is perhaps better known for the legends that persist about her life as for the facts of it. Ask the average person about Cleopatra and the descriptors that you'll get in reply will likely include beautiful or sexy before you'll hear ruthless, cunning, or powerful. She is as remembered for her love affairs with Romans Julius Caesar and Mark Antony as for her love of Egypt. And more often than not, it is either her seduction of Caesar, supposedly by rolling herself up in a carpet and smuggling herself into his room, or her tragic death by suicide, which figure most heavily in historical depictions of the ancient queen. Born in either 70 or 69 BCE, Her name at birth was Cleopatra Philippator, or Cleopatra the Father Beloved. She was part of a dynasty of Macedonian or Greek rulers, founded by Ptolemy, who served as general under Alexander the Great during his conquest of Egypt way, way back in 332 BC. Cleopatra's father was King Ptolemy XII, I can read Roman numerals, who was also known as Ptolemy Eleutis, or the Flautist. He enjoyed playing the flute at festivals and feasts in honor of the god Dionysus, which I think tells you a lot about his character. Her mother's identity is unknown, although there's a strong possibility that she was Cleopatra V Tryphena, the king's wife and possibly his half-sister. I guess we should get this out of the way now. The Egyptian rulers had possibly one of the most incestuous methods of keeping their power and wealth in the family, which involved either symbolically or actually marrying one's siblings upon taking the throne. It didn't just stop with siblings, there were also what were called double-niece marriages, where a man would marry a girl whose parents were his brother and sister. One possible explanation for this practice beyond wanting to keep the royal bloodline as royal and pure as possible could have something to do with the fact that the Egyptian god Osiris married his sister Isis in order to keep their bloodline pure. So Egyptian pharaohs who believed themselves to be representations of the gods on earth would have wanted to follow that practice as well. But make no mistake, the Egyptian pharaohs were not uneducated. Living as she did in Alexandria, home of the Great Library, Cleopatra was extremely well-educated, possibly receiving tutoring inside the library itself. She learned philosophy and oration from her Greek tutor, who also taught her the language preferred by Ptolemaic rulers, Greek. These were, as we will talk about quite a bit through this episode, not native Egyptians ruling over Egypt. And Greek historian Plutarch tells us that Cleopatra was the only member of her dynasty to learn the native Egyptian language. Other rulers in her family viewed the native language of the common people as beneath them. By the time she was an adult, in fact, Cleopatra could also speak, or at least understand, Latin, Ethiopian, Hebrew or Aramaic, Arabic, Syrian, Median, and Parthian. She was believed to have accompanied her father to a brief exile in Rome in 58 BCE, after a revolt in Egypt caused him to flee. They returned together in Egypt in 55 BCE with Roman military assistance on their side, and Ptolemy XII had his daughter Berenice IV executed for usurping his throne in his absence. This is sadly another familial pattern that is going to pop up quite a few times in this episode. In 51 BCE, upon the death of her father, the throne passed to the 18-year-old Cleopatra, whom he had previously made his regent and had named as his successor in his will. Unfortunately, she was expected to rule jointly with her 10-year-old brother, Ptolemy XIII. This is one of the ironies of Cleopatra's story. Although she reigned for almost 30 years and became such an icon that we remember her just by one name only, kinda like Cher, She technically only ever ruled Ptolemaic Egypt as a co-regent, first with her father and then with two of her younger brothers to whom, yes, we do believe she was also married. Not at the same time, They, they come in one after the other. She would also, in the later portion of her life, rule alongside her son. Soon after the sibling accession of Cleopatra VII and Ptolemy XIII, a falling out occurred between them, or at least between Cleopatra and her ten-year-old brother's advisors. In 49 BCE, the young Ptolemy's advisors forced Cleopatra to flee Egypt for Syria. This essentially meant open civil war between the siblings and their factions, and Cleopatra raised an army to accompany her back to Egypt. Now, all of this is happening in Egypt, but over in Rome, a melodrama of their own is kind of unfolding. Roman Emperor Julius Caesar, you might have heard of him, was facing some infighting of his own. He had been named one of the three rulers of Rome in 60 BCE, alongside Pompey the Great and Marcus Licinius Crassus. The first triumvirate, as their political alliance was called, had Rome, roamed. It had roamed Rome good, had ruled Rome for seven years by this point. But Caesar was obviously the superior statesman of the bunch. If the first triumvirate had been a girl band, Fifth Harmony, for example, he would have been the Camila Cabello. The alliance unfortunately collapsed in 53 BCE, and the Roman Senate supported Pompey and asked Caesar to give up his army, which he refused to do. As often happens in these things, fighting broke out with Caesar's forces defeating Pompey's army in Italy and Spain. Both men were forced to flee into retreat in order to regroup, Caesar in Greece and Pompey in Egypt, where Ptolemy XIII had him ambushed and killed, literally the moment he stepped off his boat, thinking that this would endear him to the victorious Caesar. Caesar did not take this exactly the way that Ptolemy was expecting, kind of. I think he was appalled that an Egyptian would have gall to kill a fellow Roman, even though that Roman was technically his enemy. Ptolemy thought that the enemy of his enemy was his friend and that Caesar would back him against his sister Cleopatra. But Caesar was weighing an alliance with one of the siblings over the other. He was looking to fund his own return to power in Rome and needed Egypt to repay the debts incurred by Cleopatra and Ptolemy's father. Cleopatra was incidentally also looking to get Caesar's support to help her own cause. She went with a much more man-to-man approach, I guess you could say. In 48 BCE, she famously arranged a meeting with Julius Caesar, who was incidentally notorious for his affairs with noblewomen in order to ask for his aid. In Roman historian Dio Cassius's telling, the encounter, quote, vindicated her vanity. Caesar was apparently so completely captivated by the young woman and queen that he agreed to reconcile her with her brother, reuniting them as co-monarchs as a way of promoting peace in Egypt. This, of course, would work out well for him, as a peaceful and prosperous Egypt only meant that they could repay their debts. That famous account of Cleopatra being smuggled into Caesar's palace apartment comes to us from Plutarch's Life of Julius Caesar. He tells us that she was smuggled into his apartment bundled in an oversized sack, not a carpet, on an autumn night in 48 BCE. Quote, it was by this device of Cleopatra's, it is said that Caesar was first captivated, for she showed herself to be a bold coquette. Over 30 years her senior, Caesar remained in Egypt with Cleopatra for a time, and nine months later, in the spring of 47 BCE, she gave birth to a son, Ptolemy Caesar. He was known by the Egyptian people as Caesarian or Little Caesar. Julius Caesar remained publicly silent on the subject of Caesarion, but he was thought to have privately accepted him as his own son. He did, after all, have a wife back in Rome who had never conceived a child. Cleopatra, on the other hand, made repeated official declarations naming Caesar as her son's father. But the elder Caesar was true to his word in other respects and restored the throne to Cleopatra and her younger brother, Ptolemy XIV. Because, oh yeah, did I forget to mention, while these civil wars were popping up and being squelched all over the place, her first co-ruler, her brother-husband, Ptolemy Thirteenth, had been drowned in the Nile. Cleopatra then dutifully married her younger, younger brother, and this was, again, simply the only way that she could have been considered a legitimate ruler. At some point from 46 to 45 BCE, Cleopatra traveled with her brother slash husband and her son, Little Caesar, to Rome to visit Big Caesar, who had returned there before his son was born. There Caesar was, to the best of my knowledge, ruling as dictator. I don't want to get too in the weeds over Roman politics here, as it's not my forte nor the focus of the episode. While Cleopatra was in Rome, she was given accommodations in Caesar's private villa. Sounds like a pretty sweet setup and possibly one that she occupied in hopes of having Caesarian be recognized as Caesar's heir. But within the next few years, someone had the great idea that they should totally just stab Caesar. And after he was assassinated on the Ides of March in 44 BCE, Cleopatra remained in Rome until about mid-April. But his will officially named his grandnephew Octavian as his successor instead of Caesarian, and so she returned to Alexandria. Just a few months later, Cleopatra's co-ruler slash brother slash husband Ptolemy XIV also died, possibly by poison, possibly, quote, at her instigation. Little Caesar, Caesarian, became nominal ruler in Egypt as Ptolemy XV with Cleopatra once again serving as co-monarch. By now, her hold on power in Egypt was more secure than it had ever been. She had no more siblings, for the time being, challenging her for power. Still, and this is from a neat little summary on history.com, quote, unreliable flooding of the Nile resulted in failing crops, leading to inflation and hunger. Meanwhile, a conflict was raging in Rome between a second triumvirate of Caesar's allies, General Mark Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus, and his assassins, Brutus and Cassius. Both sides asked for Egyptian support, and after some stalling, Cleopatra sent four Roman legions stationed in Egypt by Caesar to support the triumvirate. In 42 BC, after defeating the forces of Brutus and Cassius in the Battles of Philippi, Mark Antony and Octavian divided power in Rome. In 41 BCE, Cleopatra met with Roman general Mark Antony at Tarsus, south of modern-day Turkey, having been summoned there to explain the role she had played in the complicated aftermath of Caesar's assassination. According to the story recorded by Plutarch, Cleopatra sailed there in an elaborate ship, dressed in the robes of the goddess Isis. Throughout her reign, or maybe reigns? I don't know, do you differentiate when your co-monarch keeps changing? Cleopatra strongly identified herself with Isis, the sister-slash-wife of Osiris and the mother of Horus. Ancient Egyptian monarchs traditionally associated themselves with um, a divine being, their royalty with the divine, in order to reinforce their position as kings and queens. Cleopatra probably entered this meeting with Mark Antony, quote, extremely confident that she could, once again, allay the suspicions of an imperious Roman using her charms. And for all you want to say about that quote, it worked. Mark Antony agreed to defend Cleopatra's crown, um, pledging support for the removal of the current thorn in her side, which happened to be her youngest sister and rival, Arsinoe. Mark Antony probably went one step further than that at this point, helping Cleopatra conceive twin children at this meeting. She may have been strategic in this move, perhaps, quote, carefully choosing Antony as her partner for producing further heirs, as he was deemed to be the most powerful Roman figure following Caesar's demise. In short, she got pregnant in order to ally herself even further with Rome. Which, like, is not an uncommon thing if you know anything about royal history. Marriages and babies being born have always been used to cement alliances. It's just that this one happens to take shape with two Roman generals, both outside the confines of traditional marriage. I don't have a problem with that. I hope that you don't have a problem with that, but the 19th century sentimentalists who were viewing Edmonia Lewis's sculpture certainly had a problem with that. More on that in just a little bit. Cleopatra returned to Egypt, followed shortly thereafter by Mark Antony, who left behind his wife Fulvia and their children in Rome. He spent the winter of 41 to 40 BCE in Alexandria with Cleopatra, and this must have been the most epic cuffing season ever, because together they formed a drinking society called the Inimitable Livers. In 40 BCE, after Antony had returned to Rome, Cleopatra gave birth to twins, Alexander Helios after the sun and Cleopatra Selene after the moon they were seen as a hopeful sign for a new era of dynastic rule in Egypt. Under Cleopatra's rule for the time being, Egypt grew more prosperous, but things were a bit more dicey for Antony in Rome. He was asked to prove his loyalty to Octavian by marrying his Octavian's half-sister, Octavia, after Fulvia's death. In 37 BCE, Antony once again met with Cleopatra, this time seeking her aid. In exchange for Egyptian funds for a military campaign against the kingdom of Parthia, Antony agreed to return much of Egypt's eastern empire from Roman control, including Cyprus, Crete, Libya, Jericho, and large portions of Syria and Lebanon. Once again, the two became lovers, and Cleopatra gave birth to another son, Ptolemy Philadelphos, in 36 BCE. Antony's military campaign in Parthia ended in defeat, however, and he returned to Egypt and Cleopatra and their children, rather than to Rome and Octavian and Octavia. In a public celebration in 34 BCE, he bestowed lands upon his children with Cleopatra, who dressed as Isis for the ceremony. She was declared, quote, Queen of Kings, with her son Caesarion being King of Kings. Alexander Helios was declared king of Armenia, Media, and Parthia. Cleopatra Selene was bestowed with Crete and Cyrene, and the two-year-old Ptolemy Philadelphus was declared king of Syria and Sicilia. Antony also, and perhaps foolishly, declared Caesarion as Caesar's son and rightful heir, as opposed to Octavian, who had merely been named his heir in his will. While Octavian had approved the distribution of lands among Cleopatra's children, this began a war of propaganda between him and Antony. Octavian claimed that Antony was entirely under Cleopatra's control and had married her, despite being still wed to his sister, Octavia. That last part might have actually been true. He also feared that Antony would abandon Roman interests entirely and found a new capital in Egypt. In late 32 BCE, the Roman Senate stripped Antony of all his titles, and Octavian declared war on Cleopatra. Blame the woman, always, you know? Once again, I apologize, military and Roman history are not my forte, but we will skip ahead to September the 2nd, 32 BCE, when Octavian's forces had defeated Antony's and Cleopatra's in the Battle of Actium. Many of their officers defected to Octavian's side, and Cleopatra had her ships desert and flee back to Egypt. Antony soon managed to break away and follow her with a few ships of his own. By August 1st of 30 BCE, Alexandria had been breached by Octavian's forces. First, Antony's naval fleet, and then his cavalry surrendered to him. Cleopatra hid in her tomb while this was going on with her close attendants, and sent a message to Antony that she had committed suicide. In despair, Antony responded to this by falling on his sword, taking his own life at age 53. He lay dying just as news arrived that the rumor, or message, (laughs) had been false. According to Plutarch, he was carried to Cleopatra in her tomb, still dying, and told her that he had died honorably, and giving her last-minute strategic advice. Octavian entered Alexandria, occupied the palace, and seized Cleopatra's three youngest children. She was allowed to embalm and bury Mark Antony within her own tomb, before she was escorted to the palace on August 12th. There she was to meet with the victorious Octavian. Octavian promised that he would keep Cleopatra alive, but he offered no further information about what his future plans were for her after that, or for that matter, for Egypt. A recorded comment from this meeting says that Cleopatra told him bluntly, I will not be led in a triumph. She was referring there to a Roman triumphal procession through the city. This was a fate that had met her younger sister, Arsinoe, who had been paraded behind a burning effigy of the lighthouse of Alexandria by Julius Caesar. So when a spy informed Cleopatra that Octavian planned to move herself and her children to Rome in three days' time, she prepared for suicide. She closed herself in either her tomb or her palace chamber with two of her female servants, who also took their own lives. Cleopatra was just 39 years old. The actual means of her death is uncertain, but Plutarch and other writers popularized the theory that she used a venomous snake known as the asp, a symbol of divine royalty in order to take her life. Although it probably had not been actually induced to bite her if she did use a snake, as is so often depicted in paintings and sculpture, Rather, the venom was said to have been injected into her body using a needle or literally like a cheese grater kind of thing, which made scratches on her skin. To this day, the location of Cleopatra's tomb or burial site is unknown, but tradition holds that according to her wishes, Octavian had Cleopatra buried in royal fashion next to Antony in her own tomb. Angered by the thwarting of his plans, whatever they were, Octavian then returned to Rome to celebrate his conquest of Egypt and his successful consolidation of power. He would become Rome's first emperor, Augustus I, meaning the revered one. In her final hours, Cleopatra had arranged to send her then 16-year-old son Caesarian to Upper Egypt, perhaps to flee farther afield once he was safely away from Octavian. During this time, he was officially the sole ruler of Egypt. But he had no way of taking power. Hello? Someone outside my apartment is very excited at the prospect of a pharaoh caesarean. Caesarean had no way of taking power. Like, practically, you know? He was captured and executed just days after his mother's suicide. After the deaths of both Cleopatra and Caesarion, Egypt became a province of the Roman Empire, marking the end of the last Hellenistic state in the Mediterranean and of the Ptolemaic Age, which had lasted almost 300 years since the reign of Alexander the Great. Now, technically, as the last living ruler of the Ptolemaic royal lineage, Caesarion was the last nominal pharaoh of Egypt. But... I don't think he really should count since his mother is, you know, right there and was actually out there ruling, but she is, you know, we can give her, she was Egypt's last queen. And by some interpretation, she was Egypt's last Pharaoh serving as its absolute monarch. She was also its chief religious authority and an expert politician and administrator. But it was as a figure of romance and epic melodrama that she would be cemented in history, with the episode of her tragic suicide, with its star-crossed qualities once you add Mark Antony to the mix, that really captivated the public's imagination century after century. By the 19th century, her tale had been retold by Roman and Greek chroniclers, William Shakespeare, Geoffrey Chaucer, and George Bernard Shaw, just to name a few. And as I mentioned before this massive aside, she was also a popular tragic subject in Western art. I'm going to say it with me, take a little break. I'm going to refill my water here. You should be drinking water too. Go get yourself a glass of water. And when we come back, we will dive into some deeper analysis onto Edmonia Lewis's masterpiece depicting the suicide of Cleopatra. Okay, and we are aback. So unlike some of her artistic predecessors and contemporaries who simply depicted an idealized Cleopatra, maybe contemplating suicide or reposing gracefully after committing the act, Edmonia Lewis showed the queen's death more realistically and perhaps more grotesquely, unflinchingly capturing the moment after the asps venom had taken hold. Some viewers could not get themselves past the grisly event being displayed for them, and they deemed it a graphic and disturbing image of the moment when Cleopatra ended her own life. Critics of that mind did not mince words, with one calling it ghastly and absolutely repellent. Those words come from artist William J. Clark Jr., who wrote of the death of Cleopatra in Great American Sculpture in 1878 that, quote, The effects of death are represented with such skill as to be absolutely repellent, and it is a question whether a statue of the ghastly characteristics of this one does not overstep the bounds of legitimate art. To his credit, Clark did continue by saying, the quote, striking qualities of the work are undeniable, and it could have only been produced by a sculptor of genuine endowments but for some, being shown the moment after the ass poison did its job was just too graphic for their 19th century sensibilities. Perhaps what critics were also rubbing up against here was the way that Lewis did not place a sentimental lens on her figure of Cleopatra. The sculpture is monumental and dynamic, but it isn't glamorized or overly stylized that was a departure from many other depictions of the Egyptian queen which had emerged up to this point. Edmonia's Cleopatra is shown as powerful and, to my eye, stable even in death. She's very imposing, and if you haven't looked at the Instagram post for this week's episode yet, I would encourage you to do it now. I do have a view of the sculpture on display in a gallery that kind of gives you a feel of the sense of gravity that you would um, feel as you were walking towards it. But this sense of grandeur and stability, if that is what you were taking in from the sculpture, may not have sat well with 19th century audiences, taking in the demise of this woman who had existed, quote, racially and sexually outside the norm. As a seducer and a power grabber, Cleopatra's ultimate fate should have, quote, served as a warning to 19th century women. Lori Marish, the author of Sentimental Materialism, Gender, Commodity, Culture, and 19th-Century American Literature, writes that, sentimental narratives presented a deeply conservative, paranoid view of power. Power is figured as dangerous and intrusive, its effects uncertain and perhaps uncontrollable. Power can hurt. Knowing the ins and outs of Cleopatra's provocative, anti-patriarchal life story may have caused Edmonia Lewis's contemporaries at the Centennial Exposition to view the Queen's death as just desserts. It also, quote, purged her of unhealthy passions and ambition, and it put the men back in charge of worldly affairs. But here was a depiction of the Queen that showed her still in all her glory. Lewis also employed a bit of symbolism to communicate certain things about Cleopatra's end to her audience. A flower cut from a rose bush rests by her left foot. Author Bram Dykstra has pointed out that in Victorian literature and art, quote, dead and dying heroines often surrounded themselves with cut flowers to show their equivalence to them. The identical sphinx heads on the armrests of Cleopatra's throne, according to the Smithsonian, represent the twins that she bore with Roman general Mark Antony. Alexander Helios, named for her predecessor Alexander the Great, and the sun, and Cleopatra Selene, named after herself and the moon. The hieroglyphics on the side of the throne, meanwhile, are gibberish. They have absolutely no meaning. A A for effort, Edmonia, for at least trying to place Cleopatra within a more Egyptian context because 19th century viewers of this sculpture would not have necessarily understood Cleopatra's race the same way that we would today when we think about an Egyptian queen. So let's talk about the statue and the real life Cleopatra's race for, well, it's going to be, it's going to be a little while. I don't want to say a few minutes. Until this point in art history, painters and sculptors had been somewhat lackadaisical about depicting Cleopatra's race as anything other than white European. And part of that was because we don't actually know how she would have appeared. Her body has never been found and depictions of her across history tell us more about the motives of the artist and their times than of the woman herself. What we know for sure, she was descended from Egyptians' long ruling Ptolemaic Greek dynasty. Cody Cotier writes, quote, the question of her appearance is somewhat entangled with her identity. Her family hailed not from the land it governed, but from Macedonia, an ancient kingdom located in what is now northern Greece and southwestern Bulgaria. This has met- led many researchers to believe that Cleopatra had light skin, as European art has always depicted her. It was not, probably, dark like that of most native Egyptians. Some, like Cleopatra biographer Michael Grant, are adamant that she had not a drop of Egyptian blood in her veins. At least, we can be sure of that as far as the lineage of her father, Ptolemy XIII, is concerned. When it comes to her mother, not so much. In fact, we've mentioned that no one is sure of her mother's identity, and even less so of her grandparents' identities. It's possible that her mother possessed some North African ancestry that could have resulted in darker skin. But whatever Cleopatra's ancestry, scholars today contend that she, quote, valued her Greek Ptolemaic heritage the most. Although even there, it's worth noting that Macedonia, along with the rest of the Hellenic world, was not exclusively white. So her European descent did not preclude the possibility of her having black or darker features. So with our modern understanding of race and ethnicity leaving some room for doubt, surely depictions of Cleopatra such as those by the 18th century Dutch painter Willem van Meeris, which dressed her in clothing that was contemporary to the artist, not to the queen, and give her entirely Eurocentric features such as pale skin, blonde hair, and a rather pert nose, those are surely a bit off the mark. There's just no… spice. And when you think of Cleopatra, one thing that definitely comes to mind is spice. Was she beautiful? Well, that's up for debate, too. Roman historian Dio Cassius described Cleopatra as, quote, a woman of surpassing beauty. William Shakespeare wrote of her in the tragedy Antony and Cleopatra, which, by Edmonia Lewis's era, had all but become pretty much canonical fact in the minds of the public. Quote, Age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. Other women cloy the appetites they feed, but she makes hungry where most she satisfies. Greek biographer Plutarch, writing about a century after Cleopatra's death, painted a less flattering picture. Quote, for her beauty, as we are told, was in itself not altogether incomparable, nor such as to strike those who saw her. Plutarch, however, did also note that it was Cleopatra's irresistible charm which took care of that striking those who saw her. And her presence, combined with the persuasiveness of her discourse and the character which was somehow diffused about her behavior towards others, had something stimulating about it. There was sweetness also in the tones of her voice and her tongue, like an instrument of many strings, she could readily turn to whatever language she pleased. Modern historians have sort of landed in this realm of characterizing Cleopatra as less than attractive, but alluring nonetheless. This sort of reminds me of the Scarlet O'Hara phenomenon, if I may make an American literary reference quickly. We won't delve too much into the racist parts of this book. But we think of the lead character of Gone with the Wind, I hesitate to call her a heroine, as beautiful, probably because that's how she was played on the big screen by the incandescently stunning Vivian Lee. But the opening paragraph of the book literally tells the reader, quote, Scarlett O'Hara was not beautiful. That's the first line. But men seldom realized it when caught by her charm. In her face were too sharply blended the delicate features of her mother and the heavy ones of her florid Irish father. But it was an arresting face, pointed of chin, square of jaw. Her eyes were pale green without a touch of hazel, starred with bristly black lashes and slightly tilted at the ends. Above them, her thick black brows slanted upward, cutting a startling oblique line in her magnolia white skin. We're told point blank that Scarlett O'Hara is not beautiful, but that she's striking, arresting, charming, and she goes on to beguile and manipulate countless men using those charms and her mind quite successfully throughout the novel. Ironically, because this comparison I think is so apt, Vivian Lee was also one of the Hollywood actresses cast to play Cleopatra over the years. I would be remiss not to also mention Elizabeth Taylor's iconic go at the role, which is probably the one which cemented Cleopatra's character as femme fatale most strongly in 20th century minds. And funnily enough, artist and critic William J. Clark Jr. used similar language to describe Edmonia Lewis's sculpture, quote, this was not a beautiful work, but it was a very original and striking one, and it deserves particular comment. So the waters, to say the least, are murky when it comes to Cleopatra's physical appearance, and I'm spending so much time on this because it's an area of conversation that echoes parts of Edmonia Lewis's own story, where there's a lot we don't know about her, or a lot that seems to be up for debate. It might be tempting to assume that, given her mixed race ancestry—remember, she was black and Native American—Lewis would quote pick a side of the debate on Cleopatra's race or her appearance. But she simply didn't. In fact, she parked herself squarely and very successfully in neutral territory. Edmonia chose to base Cleopatra's facial features in this sculpture, particularly her nose, off of the nearest thing to a contemporary image of the queen that she could access, Roman coins housed at the Vatican. The feature that gets referenced most often when you're talking about race and sculpture is the nose, and Lewis's Cleopatra, you might have noticed, possesses a distinctly aquiline one, as do most source images and accounts of her. In the Pensée, a collection of fragments written by the French 17th century philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal, Pascal remarks that, quote, Cleopatra's nose, had it been shorter, the whole face of the world would have been changed. This has been interpreted to mean that if her nose had been smaller, she would have lacked the physical features of dominance and strength of character, which enabled her to be viewed as a leader. Physiognomy, man, it's a hell of a drug, let me tell you. Whether the images of Cleopatra like those on the coin that Edmonia viewed are actually how the Egyptian queen appeared is also a subject of debate. It's entirely possible that the person designing her coins made their own choices regarding her appearance, perhaps making some tweaks that would, in fact, communicate that she was a leader, a dominating character, especially those features that would communicate that to a contemporary Roman citizen who may have been using these coins. But even within her coinage, there is some variation in Cleopatra's facial features. On some, like an example struck in Alexandria around 51 BCE, her nose is less hooked, her cheeks are full, and her chin is small. On others, such as a coin struck in Antioch after 37 BCE, her nose hooks dramatically, her forehead slopes broadly, her chin is pointy, and her face is largely more masculine. Possibly this example is following a Roman artistic convention where the wife's appearance in a partnership assimilated that of her husband to better suggest their harmony. Because Cleopatra's face is on the front of this coin, while Mark Antony's is on the back. Is it possible that she was placed on the front to indicate her more powerful role, but her features were still assimilated to that of her husband? Your guess is as good as mine. I have photos of these coins on the Instagram for you to reference. Other examples of artworks that maybe get us close to an accurate depiction of Cleopatra include a 1st century AD Roman bust of her that is in the Altus Museum in Berlin. In this example, her face is framed by curly, rather textured hair. Her eyes are almond shape and her nose, although prominent, is decidedly European. In another bust, this one housed at the Profano Museum at the Vatican, Her features are more softly modulated, and her hair, to my eye, appears even more textured. In this example, I also find her lips a bit fuller. Her nose is missing here, but its footprint on the face suggests that it was quite a lot wider than its Berlin counterpart. Choosing a specific Roman coin featuring Roman characteristics as her reference image in the 1876 sculpture demonstrates that Edmonia, quote, felt compelled to separate Egypt from Cleopatra and Cleopatra from black women. Because if Cleopatra is a quote-unquote unlikely proxy for cultural debates today, it was also already happening in Edmonia's time. In 1869, white artist William Wetmore Story had sculpted the queen with African features as an abolitionist statement. 19th century Egyptology held fast to the belief that the rulers of Egypt were white, while their servants were black. Buick writes aptly that, quote, such reasoning also helped to justify the modern era's enslavement of Africans, providing a historical basis for black slavery in addition to the biblical. Abolitionists, as well as anyone who would represent the queen as black, challenged such theories every time they claimed Cleopatra for their purpose. So perhaps Edmonia was just avoiding making any editorial choices of her own regarding the Egyptian queen's race. And if anyone questioned her on Cleopatra's features, she could simply point to her source material as the most authoritative example of them and remove herself entirely from the conversation. If you'll remember from the first part, abolitionists wanted to use Edmonia as a symbol of their movement. And that was something that she was hesitant to do, she didn't always want to place that autobiographical lens on her work. It opened her up to a lot of criticisms and a lot of expectations that she didn't necessarily want to be a factor in her art. And if avoiding that racial lens was her goal, she may have been right to disconnect herself from that possible racial or autobiographical conversation around Cleopatra. Kirsten Buick writes, Cleopatra's persona as an authoritarian femme fatale also made her association with any black woman problematic for Lewis. With a long, highly charged debate about what Cleopatra represented waging on in the 19th century, well, culture wars, for lack of a better term. Edmonia placing any black lens onto her would be to, quote, claim Cleopatra's sexuality for black women, reaffirming racialist beliefs in black women being inherently oversexual. And so instead, she, quote, inserted authenticating details to imply that Cleopatra's reality was external to herself and to black women. The abolitionist artist, William Wetmore Story, had come under fire for his departure from the widely accepted classical features in his Statue of Cleopatra, in an argument that, when you read it in 2023, really does have echoes of the cultural discourse caused by Disney casting a Black actress to play the Little Mermaid. To give you another example of this cultural firestorm happening around Cleopatra, after contemporary actress Sarah Bernhardt performed the role of the queen in a play wearing a dark wig with, quote, copper-stained skin, one particularly bitter letter to the editor read, quote, although an Egyptian queen, Cleopatra was not of the Egyptian race. While she may have worn royal Egyptian robes, she herself physically must have possessed the characteristics of the Aryan, at least a white skin, and possibly blue eyes and golden hair. Now, under these circumstances, will not one of the several Cleopatras at present give us the queen in all the splendor of Aryan beauty? You know, it's its not quite the um, argument against theatrical blackface that I was hoping for, Uh, It's giving very much, why is there no representation of beautiful white women anymore? Why is there no representation for little white girls anymore? And as you might expect, this type of controversy is still entangled with Cleopatra's legacy today. In 2020, the casting of Israeli actress Gal Gadot as the queen in an upcoming biopic of Cleopatra was met with disappointment and outrage from critics and just casual discourse engagers who hoped to see a black woman fill the role. Gadot responded to that criticism by saying, quote, First of all, if you want to be true to the facts, Cleopatra was Macedonian. We were looking for a Macedonian actress that could fit Cleopatra. She wasn't there. And I was very passionate about Cleopatra people are people, and with me, I want to celebrate the legacy of Cleopatra and honor this amazing historic icon that I admire so much. I, like Edmonia Lewis, would like to remove myself from this narrative. I mean, it's not really my place to comment on, I think, one way or the other, but I think when it comes to Cleopatra and a depiction of her, we'll know the right answer when we see it, and I don't think we've seen it quite yet. For what it's worth, on celebrating the Queen's legacy, Godot also said, quote, We're going to show not just how sexy and appealing she was, but how strategic and smart, and how much impact she had and still has on the world we're living in today. I've watched all the Cleopatra movies throughout history, but I feel like we're telling the story the world needs to hear now. Cleopatra's racial heritage is taken extremely serious today, and that was the same in Edmonia Lewis's time as dismantling society's understanding of the ancient queen as a white woman would have also invited a dismantling of the white supremacist ideologies that used her as a symbol to uphold them. It's fascinating to me that Ammonia was able to skillfully and successfully extricate herself from that discourse. And really, in doing so, she did place that lens that Gal Gadot was talking about, of not just how sexy and appealing she was, or not just how racially diverse she was, but also how strategic and smart she was, and how much impact she had. As cultural historian Mary Hamer writes, quote, The demands of the moment have always determined Cleopatra's image. Authors and artists have, over time, produced divergent likenesses of her based on what they wished to emphasize for their own audiences. Even contemporary art historians have trouble agreeing on interpretations of Edmonia Lewis's death of Cleopatra. Kirsten Buick notes that quote, in 1990, the art historian Albert Boehm described Lewis's Cleopatra as an angry and conflicted image, writhing in agony, her face distorted into a pained grimace. Are we looking at the same sculpture? In 1996, Buick goes on, the art historian Judith Wilson provided a very different description of the sculpture. The upper torso of Lewis's dying sovereign arches back, and her head is thrown up and over to one side in a particularly graphic description of the expiring monarch's death throes. While this results in a degree of natural fidelity, it also times with the body language of haughty defiance. Buick says, There is a vast difference between writhing in agony and a posture of haughty defiance. It seems as if boime, I'm sorry, it's B-O-I-M-E, boime, And Wilson are describing two very different objects, even though they use those objects ultimately to explain Lewis. In her death of Cleopatra, Edmonia Lewis has created a work that was not beautiful or idealized, but one that was historic, original, striking, a portrait in some ways, authentic, real. Above all, she showed an empowered Cleopatra claiming her biography by committing suicide on her throne. Smithsonian curator Karen Lemmy believes that Lewis portrayed Cleopatra, quote, sealing her fate and having the last word on how she'll be recorded in history, an idea that may have appealed to Edmonia as well. Now, one last kind of odd aside before we wrap up Edmonia Lewis's biography. Despite the sculpture's powerful symbolism, both as a depiction of history and as a means of understanding the queen and the artist, the death of Cleopatra never sold. And not long after its debut at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, it went missing from its rightful place in history as Lewis's masterwork, what should have been her crowning achievement as a sculptor. The two-ton sculpture never returned to Italy with its creator because Lewis couldn't afford the shipping costs. Instead, she placed it in a storage facility in Chicago. In 1892, the sculpture had made its way to a saloon, It then passed into the hands of a notorious gambler and racehorse tycoon named Blind John Condon, who used it as a gravestone for his favorite horse. Yes, you heard me right. A man used a two-ton sculpture as a grave marker for a horse. What's the connection between Edmonia sculpture and a racehorse, you might be wondering? Well, said horse was named Cleopatra. In the 1970s, the racetrack at which Cleopatra was buried, not the queen, again, we haven't found her body, The racetrack was turned into a United States Postal Service facility, and Cleopatra the Sculpture was hauled off again into a storage yard. I assume that Cleopatra the horse was also removed, but to a place where the monumental grave marker could not accompany him or her. From that storage facility, a fire inspector and his son's Boy Scout troop quote-unquote rescued the sculpture and cleaned it. They also painted it white because at that time, Whitewashing was okay. I forget what source said that, but I thought it was really funny. So I kept it in. In 1988, after a long search, art historian Marilyn Richardson rediscovered the sculpture after more than a century in the cramped storeroom of a suburban Illinois shopping mall. She said it was there amongst the holiday decorations next to snowmen and Christmas trees and turkeys. If you're interested in hearing Richardson discuss her finding the sculpture, I will point you to an episode of Side Door, which is a Smithsonian Institution podcast hosted by Lizzie Peabody. This one is called, aptly, Finding Cleopatra. It took over $30,000 to restore the sculpture, and conservators only had one photograph of the original to which they could refer. Today, they are pretty confident that they have most of the finer details back in their original condition, but I don't know, you have to wonder, if that Boy Scout troop hadn't got their hands on Cleopatra, I mean, what could we be missing? As for Edmonia Lewis, her final years are also shrouded in mystery. The death of Cleopatra and the Centennial Exposition marked the end of the first phase of her artistic career. Thereafter, she would, quote, turn away from ideal sentimental themes to religious subjects, works that were created for specific, sometimes utilitarian contexts. Until the 1890s, Edmonia continued to exhibit her work and was continued to be visited by American tourists, including, I think I noted in the first part, Frederick Douglass at her studio in Rome. But little is known about the last decade or so of her life. Again, as I said in the first part, we don't know if she ever got married or had children. It is speculated that she spent her final years in Rome, but the recent discovery of death documents related to her indicate that she died in London on September 17, 1907. The cause was listed as Bright's disease, an inflammation of the kidneys. Her age, interestingly enough, was listed as 42, although according to other documents we have from her life, like her passport, she would have actually been about 63, although her passport lists her at about four feet tall. So who knows? Who knows what sources you can trust when it comes to Edmonia Lewis. In 2018, a very belated obituary was published in the New York Times as part of their Overlooked series, and you can go read that as well. It has really only been in the last few decades, and I mean really the last few years, that Edmonia Lewis's life and art have received posthumous acclaim. Her pieces are now part of the permanent collections of the Howard University Gallery of Art and the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Her masterpiece, Death of Cleopatra, led a life just as shrouded in mystery as her own. In 2017, Google, of all people, honored Edmonia Lewis with a doodle on their homepage. It, quote, depicts Lewis sculpting one of her most famous works, The Death of Cleopatra. The vibrant colors of the Google letters also pay tribute to Lewis's Native American roots. Her Native American name was Wildfire. Their little blurb about her closed. Lewis's legacy continues to thrive through her art and the path she helped forge for women and artists of color. Today we celebrate her and what she stands for, self-expression through art, even in the face of adversity. I feel like I haven't done justice to Edmonia Lewis's life story, but really, I also don't think that's by any fault of my own. The source material is just so, so sparse when it comes to her, and possibly that's how she wanted it. So with that, that is going to be all for me today. I hope you enjoyed this kind of meandering view of her life and this honing in on two of her most famous pieces. If you haven't listened to part one, I don't know how you made it this far in the episode. (laughs) Go back and listen to that. Um, Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really does help get the show in front of new listeners. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Art of History Podcast and check out the source images and supplemental images if you haven't already. If you would like to support the show further, I am on Patreon at patreon.com slash mata underscore of underscore fact. You can always, always email me if you have any questions or comments about this week's episode or what you'd like to hear next. Um, You can leave a comment on the Instagram as well. But if you'd like to shoot me a message, you can do that at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Thank you ever so much for listening. Until next time.